as you're turning to James chapter 5, which is where we're going to be today. First thing is, if you take notes, you might notice in your outline that the text this morning was James 5, 13 to 19. And it turns out there's a 20th verse in James, and we're going to talk about that too. You can cross out that 19 and put a 20 and blame that on me. In Scripture, wisdom and its opposite, foolishness, aren't just intellectual issues. They're not just issues about knowledge. They're also moral issues. That's why in Psalm 14, it says that the fool says in his heart, there's no God. And that fool is corrupt, and they've committed abominable deeds, it says. You know, trying to pursue true, lasting, godly wisdom in our culture can seem difficult at times. It can be difficult at times. Um, but I was reminded when I was studying, preparing for this in James, that it was even harder for James's original audience than it is for us. They were living through famine and poverty and persecution that we really can't imagine in our culture. As they were fleeing Jerusalem under persecution and didn't really have much. James writes this pointed practical letter that we've been in for several months now when, while Frank's not preaching. And he writes this letter, James does, presumably to a bunch of Christians who used to be in his congregation. He stays in Jerusalem. They scatter. He writes this letter for them. And he preaches to them in it about godly wisdom, what that looks like. He borrows heavily from Proverbs, and he borrows heavily from the teachings of his half-brother, who also happened to be creator and savior of the world. He gives us lots of little wisdom speeches, and he encourages Christians to pursue true wisdom by following Jesus' summary of the Old Testament law, which is simply, love God, love neighbor. And in these final verses that we're going to be in together this morning, this portion of his letter focuses primarily on prayer, which is appropriate, but it also brings together some of the themes that we've seen throughout James. Themes of wisdom, theme, the theme of perfection, and the theme of the power of the tongue. So he tells us this morning how the wise are made perfect. If you are able and willing, would you stand with me and let's read God's word together. James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Gracious Lord, uh, thank you this morning that we can gather here and open your word together and uh, just bask in the truth that you reveal to us through your word. 
would you give us the attention? Would you help me uh, with my words? And would you give us um, application from your word this morning? Thank you and praise you for this opportunity. Precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Have a seat. One of the themes that permeates the whole book of James, not just our text this morning, but we see it sort of wrapped up here in a way, is the theme of the power of the tongue. James talks a lot about this. And the first thing we're going to see this morning from our text is we're going to see a few ways, four ways, how the wise use the power of their tongue. This is how the wise use the power of their tongue. Cheat sheet, their prayer, praise, call for help, and confession. That's what the four are going to be. First, let's trace a little bit of this power of the tongue throughout James. In chapter 1, recall, he told us to be quick to listen, slow to, pe- slow to speak, and slow to become angry. He also said, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Chapter 2, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. And then he rebukes the empty speech of the hypocrite in James 2, verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, James 5 says. See, he condemns empty speech here when it's not accompanied with corresponding works. Chapter 3, he talks about the tongue being a fire that sets a great forest aflame. Our tongue can defile our whole body, he says. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, and it's full of deadly poison. With it, we bless God, and we curse men who are made in God's image. Chapter 4, he says, don't speak against a brother or sister, because there's only one judge, and you're not the judge, basically what he says. He also says later on that arrogant speech boasts of its own plans, and we boast about what we're going to do tomorrow. This is showing a lack of humility in submitting to God's will. Beginning of chapter 5, we see that the rich are told to weep and howl in light of the judgment that's coming on them when God brings justice, and he will bring justice, and these rich are condemned by the outcry of those that are unjustly exploited. And here in the final verses of the final chapter of James' letter, he's showing us how the wise believer uses their words. You might remember last week from verse 12, where we're told to consistently speak the truth with with such integrity that people can't honestly question our words. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And now in verse 13, we see the first thing from our text this morning, the first way the wise are to use their words is to pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Well, then he must pray. Another important theme throughout James is how to suffer well, how to actually count trials and suffering as joy. These are actually good things for you. If you lack wisdom for how to suffer well, well, just ask God. He gives generously and without reproach. But ask in faith without doubting. Ask without doubting what? Without doubting in the power of your prayer? Well, no, not in this case. The doubt he's talking about here is the kind of doubt that questions the the nature and the character of God. That God knows and wants what's best for you. When we go to him for prayer, especially in the context of wisdom for suffering, 
we are to pray knowing that he knows and wants what's best for us, not questioning that. Among other things, prayer puts suffering in its redemptive perspective. One person said it this way. He said, suffering is inevitable, but misery is optional. We will experience suffering. This, I think, is how Paul could be sorrowful, but always rejoicing at the same time, like it says in 2 Corinthians 6. So the first thing is pray. The second way the wise use their words is to sing praises. Are you cheerful? Are you happy? Are you satisfied? Use your words to praise God for him. Worship with your voice. The word for sing used here actually comes from the Hebrew word for psalm, and it's in it there's an element of out loud vocal corporate worship. Like Paul says in Corinthians or Colossians 3, excuse me, he says, We are to admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Third way that the wise use their tongue. If you are sick, call for help, it says in verse 3. The wise use their tongue to call for help. Notice that it's the sick person here who's told to initiate the call to the elders of the church for prayer or healing. This is said explicitly. There's a couple of implicit things that are also here, I think, that are incumbent upon the sick. Two things. One is a personal confession to God of all known sins. That's only implicit here, but I think in verse 15 it's clear that there's a connection here to, to sins. If he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. And also a personal conviction that the Holy Spirit is calling you to obey in this particular way, that is calling for the elders of the church for this prayer of healing. The point, I think, is it's not some whimsical, give it, you know, just, just give it a try because nothing else works kind of attitude. But if someone is, has confessed and feels led to pursue this biblical prescription for healing, then they should pursue it. This is the only place this prescription for healing here is unique in all of Scripture. And we're too quick to just put our faith in other things like medicine or ourselves or something else and not to just ask for healing when we need it. Okay, so fourth, the fourth way that the wise use their tongue from our text this morning is confession. Beyond the personal confession that I just mentioned, we see in verse 16 that wise Christians are to confess to each other as well, not just to elders or priests or some official church office or someone in authority, but to confess to one another. Now, this is really significant, um, maybe the most significant piece of this whole text, and we're going to spend some time on it in a few minutes. But now, at the beginning, let's just ask ourselves a, que ask ourselves a question. How much... What percentage, let's ask it this way, of the words that come out of your mouth or mine are doing these four things, prayer, praise, calling for help, confessing? Should we do a show of hands? I did a show of hands, first service. I think we'll do a show of hands. Raise your hand if more than 20% of the words that come out of your mouth are doing one of these four things. <laughs> it's the same response I got out of the first service. Notice my hand didn't go up either. Yet this is how wise people speak, according to God's word. You know, I was convicted that to get my percentage up, maybe I should talk a little bit less. 
But then I was reminded of Abe Lincoln's famous quote. He says, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. What kind of sickness is James referring to in verse 14? This is important in interpreting this text. And there's some options. More often than not, usually, this text is interpreted, if not exclusively, then primarily about physical sickness. This is how it seems to me, this is how most of the early church fathers interpreted this scripture. It's It's how many um, commentators throughout the ages have interpreted the scripture. And I think it's how most people interpret it. It's possible that way grammatically, and it's possible a different way as well. The word in verse 14 used here for sick to refer to you know physical illness, it's used that way, the same word, a bunch of times in the Gospels. It's used to refer to a physical illness. But the same word is also used throughout Acts and the Epistles to refer to a weak faith or a weak conscience. This could translate as weary, someone who's become weary. In verse 15, the word there used for sick can really only be translated as as weary. Well, not only, it can be translated as sick, but it's also translated as weary. The only other place it's used in scripture was in Hebrews 12, and that was in reference to Jesus, who has endured so much hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary, that's the word, and lose heart. There's also this business of the anointing with oil that the elders are told to do here. And the word that James, the words, the phrase James chose to use here to refer to this anointing was not the set of words that was commonly used to refer to a ceremonial anointing. There's a more mundane word, not a sacred word, um, used to refer to this activity. And it's more like rubbing with oil, not anointing with oil. And James used these words, the mundane words, not the sacred ones. His wording suggests then a more common use of oil, not in some religious ceremony, a medicinal or a therapeutic use of oil. The same word is used in the story of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, where the Good Samaritan um, bandages the injured man's wounds, it then says that he poured olive oil and wine on them. Same words were used there. Oil was also used almost cosmetically in a way to refresh yourself or as a way to refresh somebody else. The woman who poured perfume on Jesus' feet in Luke 7, this is the word that's used there. And the host who put oil on the head of his guest later in Luke 7, same word. Jesus said that when you fast, you should put oil, same word, on your head and wash your face so that people won't see that you're fasting and you won't draw attention to yourself. So we can see how this could be read that the weak and weary should be refreshed and encouraged by the elders' actions here. And then spiritual healing and renewal would come from the Lord as a result of their obedient and faithful prayer. So it's primarily spiritual. This also fits well with the surrounding texts, which are all about praying and spiritual restoration. And maybe the strongest evidence that Maybe this verse isn't to be taken as primarily or exclusively about physical sickness. Is, you know, I know of some cases, and I'm guessing you know of some cases too, where faithful people attempted to follow this prescription um, with the right intention, giving honor to God in the process, and God chose not to heal in that case. There's a lot of reasons God could choose not to heal, 
but I have a hard time believing that in every case it's because the faith of the people involved was not strong enough or something like that. So why would God give this prescription for people to follow it and be disappointed? There's clearly a spiritual element in all of this, whether this is talking about physical illness or not. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. That phrase in verse 15, it makes it evident that there's at least some spiritual element here. Now, it's also true biblically that physical and spiritual, the, the physical and spiritual are often interconnected, right? Even in James, this is the case. James chapter 1, he traces this path, you might remember, from desire, or lust is the word, giving birth to temptation, and then sin, and then death as a consequence. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 about some in the Corinthian church who brought judgment upon themselves by improperly observing communion. And it says that they brought judgment on themselves even to the point of weakness, sickness, and death, he says. A lot of Proverbs make this connection. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs 11.19, true righteousness leads to life, but the one who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. Proverbs 12.28, in the path of righteousness there is life, but another path leads to death. Proverbs 19.16, the one who obeys commandments guards his life, the one who despises his ways will die. We can also look at Jesus' physical healing miracles and how he often forgives sins before a miraculous healing. Remember the paralytic in Matthew 9. First words out of Jesus' mouth to the paralytic are, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes are freaking out a little bit when that happens. And then Jesus says to the scribes, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he told the paralytic to get up and go home. And he did. He did something similar with a different paralytic in Mark 2. This is the guy who was lowered down by his friends from the roof. The first words out of Jesus' mouth to him were not about his physical need or his physical healing. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. He addresses the spiritual need, the bigger need first. So personal sin can lead to physical ailments. Apparently, that's pretty clear biblically. But not every physical ailment is caused by personal sin. It's a, it's a mistake that was easy to make in uh, Jewish culture. It's the mistake that Job's friends made. And remember when Jesus healed the man that was born blind in John 9? His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he'd be born blind? What did Jesus say? He said, neither of them sinned. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So not all physical sickness is due to personal sin, even though some of it is. But in one sense, all sickness, in a way, is traceable to sin in general, right, to the fall. And then all physical healing is at least partly spiritual. One commentator said it this way. He said, there's no such thing as, so to speak, non-spiritual healing. When the aspirin works, it is the Lord who made it work. And when the surgeon sets the broken limb and the bone knits, it is the Lord who has made it knit. Every good gift is from above. Quote from James. On no occasion should a Christian approach the doctor without also approaching God. You know, if you know my story, you know that I'm personally thankful for modern chemotherapy drugs. I mean, if without them, I probably wouldn't be here right now. But I don't give drugs the credit for my health. 
either way you take the healing being talked about here, primarily physical, primarily spiritual, a little bit of both, there's one thing we can be certain on, and that is that the focus of this whole passage here, this whole group of sentences, is on prayer. Prayer is the main verb, and the anointing is just a participle on the side. We know that God is the only one that can heal and restore, and we know that he uses prayer in his sovereignty as an important means to access or to unleash or to accomplish his healing. We know he does this. So let's take a look at our text and find applications from it for how the wise pray. The next thing I want to look at is how the wise pray. At least seven things, I think seven things in here. Studying scripture about prayer can be personally convicting. I don't know if you've ever had that experience or if it's maybe just me. And if it were just me up here giving you a command to pray all the time or pray more or pray better, you'd be right to maybe just ignore me. I'd be right to feel like a little bit of a hypocrite. But James is uniquely qualified in this way. And he's the one who's commanding us to pray. He uses prayer seven times in just our text this morning, and four of them are just outright imperatives to pray. Hegesippus was an early scripture commentator. He lived from 110 to 180 AD, and he wrote this about James. He, James, was in the habit of entering the temple alone and was often found upon his bended knees and interceding for the forgiveness of the people so that his knees became as hard as a camel's in consequence of his habitual supplication and kneeling before God. This dude prayed a lot. Here's what he tells us about how the wise pray. We've already seen the first one. The wise pray all the time. Suffering, pray. Satisfied, pray. Second one we've also already seen. The wise seek prayer from mature believers in their life when they are sick or weary. When I've been physically ill, I know that the temptation to spiritual weariness is especially strong. And I can also attest to the personal power of prayer, not just for physical healing, but more importantly for spiritual restoration, for sustenance. It's huge. Third way the wise pray, they pray with faith in the name of the Lord. This is the same thing as the prayer without doubt. James talked about this in chapter 1 when he tells us to pray without doubting. Now, in our text here, this is directed to the prayer of elders, pastors, but we can extract this, we can generalize this to be true for all prayer. Back in James 1 when he told us to pray without doubting, remember, he was telling us to pray without doubting in who God is and in, in what his intentions are for you. Doubting the character of the one we pray to or that he loves us and wants what's best for us. That's the kind of doubting he's talking about. This isn't faith in our own confidence that our prayers will work or faith that we follow the right recipe and that's why they're going to work. This is faith in the character and promises of the all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect God who gives us every good thing. Here's an example of what the prayer of a doubter or a person with dead faith might sound like. Something like this, maybe. Lord, I'm unhappy in my marriage. I should have never married this person. They will never understand me, and I will never understand them. We're just making each other miserable. If you want me to be happy and fulfilled and to be able to serve you better, then radically change my spouse or get me out of this marriage. How much better to pray, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to grow in holiness 
by loving my wife like Christ loves his church. Forgive me for my selfishness and pride. Grant me the wisdom to know how to best serve my wife in a way that points her and everybody else to you. Pick me up when I fail and give me the strength that I don't have. I like that prayer better. That prayer trusts that God has you where he wants you. That's not an accident. In this example, if you're married, it's not an accident that you're married to the person you feel. Also, we pray in Jesus' name because it's only by our identification with Christ that we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. We read that in Hebrews 4. And what do we find there? We find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. The fourth way, James says that the wise pray, uh, they pray with others. They pray with and for others. You know, prayer throughout the book of James was only a minor theme throughout the whole book, even though it's the topic of the text this morning and our main topic. I think we can see a shift in emphasis from James 1 into James 5 and how he addresses prayer or the types of prayers that are there. Remember in James 1, it was the, if you lack wisdom, ask God, pray to God, and he'll give you the wisdom you need to suffer well. In James 4, he talks about humbling yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. But now in chapter 5, we see wise Christians praying mostly for others, not for themselves. In fact, in verse 16, there's this command to pray for one another. The fifth way that the wise pray is to be specific. This one's only implied in the text, but I think it's there in the mutual confession part and, and there in Elijah when he prays specifically for it to not rain and then rain. Praying in generalities can be a way of avoiding specific answers that we might not want to hear. I think that's been true for me in my prayer life, if I'm being honest. You know, my son, who's six, you know, prays in generalities sometimes. Not because I think he's avoiding something. It's just bad parenting. <laughs> yeah, like, God, let us have a, a great day. Yeah, stuff like that. In order to pray for specifics for other people, we need to know specifics about other people, which means that we have to invest in relationships within the body of Christ that will increase our sensitivity to the needs of others that we know what to pray for. Six. The sixth way the wise are to pray is to pray earnestly. This is in verse 16 and 17. Verse 16, the effective prayer of the righteous can accomplish much. The word here used for prayer, there's different words that can be used for prayer. The word here can also be translated as petition or supplication or entreaty. Elijah prayed earnestly. The word is just used right there. Literally, that means it says he prayed with prayer. I think this means we're to pray like it matters. We're not to pray casually. John said, 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Earnest prayer isn't primarily about what, what we want. It's primarily about what God wants and often what God wants us to do. And seventh and finally, the way that the wise pray is that the wise pray with power. The wise pray with power. It's easy to underestimate the power of prayer. Yet the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, our text says. James uses Elijah as a really familiar example here. He does this. He uses Old Testament men of faith 
several times throughout his letter. His audience would have known these stories really, really well. They also probably would have been reticent to think that they could pray as effectively as one of these heroes of the faith, right? So he starts out when he introduces Elijah, he says, yeah, he was a man with a nature like ours. But when he prayed earnestly, God answers. If you know Christ, you have all the righteousness you need, and the effective prayer of a righteous can accomplish much. This is the point he's making here. John of Antioch was a fourth century preacher, and I found this section that he wrote, these words that he wrote on prayer. This is what he said. He said, the potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions. It has hushed anarchy to rest. It's extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the fates of heaven, assuaged diseases, dispelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of a thunderbolt. There is in it an all-sufficient panoply, a treasure undiminished, a mine which is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root the foundation, the mother of a thousand blessings. How quick I am to forget how powerful a prayer can be. So the wise pray powerfully. To speak like God wants us to speak and to pray like God wants us to pray, we need to be more sensitive to the needs of others, said a minute ago. In fact, this is how the wise seek and participate in healing. How the wise seek and participate in healing is in community. James is talking to the church here. So the wise seek and participate in healing in church community. Suffering should elicit prayer. Sufficiency should elicit praise. Exceptional need should elicit calling for help. And to pursue healing, we need to confess to God, but we also need to confess to one another. Verse 16 is clear. The imperative here to confess to one another is linked with the healing prayer that comes before it and the anointing by the word therefore in verse 16. But everything that follows that is not about what the elders or priests or anyone else are doing. It says to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. This is certainly talking about confession to fellow believers. Now we would recognize that God's the only one who can forgive sin, right? So what's the point of confessing to fellow believers? When we confess to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, his word says. The amazing news of the gospel is that Christ took on himself the penalty for our sin, and he gives us his righteousness so that now we're declared righteous, e even though we don't deserve it by our own merit. You're righteous if you are in Christ, and God wants your actions to reflect that. He wants my actions to reflect that, yet we still sin, and sin has consequences, and we still need healing this side of eternity that only God can bring. This is not talking about salvation healing. This is talking about a different kind of healing, a restoration kind of healing. There's something more going on in this idea of mutual confession and its connection to prayer and healing. Certainly, when we sin against each other and we become aware of that, we should go to the offended person and confess and ask forgiveness. Certainly, that's the case, but I think there's something even deeper going on here. I think what James is doing here, I could be wrong, but I think that here God is giving us an incredibly practical tool to help us live wisely and fight temptation and experience healing. How? 
We should be in relationships within the body of Christ where we have intimate confession and prayer partners, where we know people well enough and people know us well enough. Mutual confession speaks to this kind of transparency that we should pursue in these kinds of relationships. Real, specific, and raw prayer for each other is only possible when we know real, specific, and raw needs. In a lot of ways, these things aren't maybe appropriate for a Sunday morning. Now, is this a requirement to receive forgiveness from God? Of course not. But I think it's an incredible tool that James gives us here. I've had people in my life that have said it sort of this way. You know, those secret sins that you struggle with over and over and over again, the recurring ones, and you think you're doing good for a while, but then wham, and then you fail and you're discouraged. When you confess those things to God, he forgives you. He doesn't keep reminding you of your failures over and over again. But there's another spirit who never wants to see you free from them, and he does remind you of them. But if you shed light on those secret sins by confessing them to your brother, they're much harder for the enemy to hold them over your head. Sins that are less secret are less powerful, I think is a summary of that statement. James told us in chapter 1 that we didn't have to cooperate with the downward spiral of Desire to lead into temptation, leading to sin, leading to death. He tells us to resist it. This is the tool he gives, it, gives us to resist it. One of them in chapter 5. Confess your sins to each other and pray for one another so that you may be healed. There's a good chance that you need this and there's a good chance <coughs> you're maybe not getting it. Most of you probably know German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He had an underground seminary in Pomerania on the outskirts of Nazi Germany where he lived in a community with a couple dozen young pastors. And he wrote a book about that time together in his ministry called Life Together. And in the final chapter of that book, which was called Communion and Confession, Bonhoeffer gives some reasons for the practice of mutual confession. Chief among them is to, co is to combat the isolation that sin brings. Here's what he says. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. The other benefit of mutual confession per Bonhoeffer is that it brings healthy humiliation. Quote, confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It is a dreadful blow to pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is an ignominy that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man dies a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. James told us to humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. Humility is a good thing for our prayer life and for healing. Our Lord said, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs is the kingdom. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, there's a lot of dangers involved in pursuing relationships like this if I don't already have one. Relationships that go beyond a Sunday smile and that stop pretending you're doing all right when you're really not doing all right. Being vulnerable is risky. Really sharing the darker parts of your struggles with someone else is super risky. But shining light on those dark places will help you heal. 
for James Cone. May we each be pursuing this kind of transparency with another trusted believer or a small group of women, however it might look for you. Just like mutual confession is at some level incumbent on us, so is the encouragement to participate in the restoration of other believers who are wayward or wandering or lost or backslidden. This is what verse 19 and 20 are referring to. My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Straying from the truth here isn't so much a reference to active rebellion, active rejection. I think it's more of a slipping backwards because of neglect or maybe lack of discipline or maybe a temporary blindness caused by pursuing something too much, something of the world. And so verse 19 and 20 are basically a call to personal revival in the context of church community. So there's encouragement in here, both for the one who is straying from the truth and for the one who turns him back. The whole letter of James has been about confronting behavior, actions, that demonstrate a faith that is not alive, like it should be, professing Christians that aren't walking the walk. James' letter calls out empty talk, it calls out doubtful prayer, and it calls out worthless religion. How fitting for him to end the whole book here by showing us a picture of wise speech, powerful prayer, and a healing community. Implicit in verses 16, 19, and 20 is a beautiful truth that there are ample opportunities for restoration in the church. There's huge encouragement in here, but you can't be passive and disengaged. You have to take some risks and invest in real community, not just showing up on Sunday and checking some boxes and staying distant emotionally from people. There's huge encouragement. You feel lost or disenchanted or maybe a little hopeless or maybe frustrated. There's a path to healing from that. And you can find it in a healthy community of God's people who certainly aren't perfect, but we're trying to rely on the one who is and who is making us into a better image of his son who is perfect. If you believe that you know Christ, but you feel like you've strayed a little bit, like you've wanted a little bit, if you're living a fractured and inconsistent life, you don't have to live that way. There's a path to restoration. This should be encouraging news. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Don't withdraw from the family of believers because you may need the family of believers to be healed, even if that's maybe part of the reason you're hurt. It doesn't change the fact that we need each other. Now, James' encouragement here is for the believer um, in the church who at some point has already confessed their sin and acknowledged their need and received his forgiveness. There are a lot worse states to be in. James isn't addressing those here, but it's worth us talking about for a, a second. Because if you never really knew Christ in the first place, then all the wise living in the world can't save you, won't save you. You know, I stumbled into some interesting wisdom teachings from other religious traditions over the last week. And one of them was a Zen motivational story called Five Powerful Habits to Improve Your Value and Transform Your Life. There's no shortage of stuff on the internet to give you wisdom, so to speak. 
And actually, you read some of these. I'm not going to read them. Sorry. You read some of these, and it sounds like you're, you know, they're not all bad advice, right? Some of them could be, you know, buried somewhere in Proverbs. But Christian or not, let me tell you that nothing can improve your value. Whether you know your Lord or not, you are infinitely valuable to God. It's why he created you in his image. It's why he gave you life, liberty, liberty, and opportunity. It's why he revealed to you his law, even if you only know it in your conscience. He knew you'd rebel and go your own way, and he knew you'd be brought under his just condemnation, <clears throat> resulting in you deserving death, eternal separation from him, and any hope of healing or peace. But that's not the whole story. He also provided the solution. He doesn't force it on you, but he offers forgiveness and the righteousness of his son who suffered and died in your place. Unless and until you honestly accept his provision, you're in a lot more danger than anyone in James's audience here because you'll, you'll die in your sin, scripture says. You're lost. However, God offers eternal life. If you turn from your sin and you trust in his provision, you don't have to be lost anymore. The restoration of James doesn't apply to this case. He's not talking about eternal salvation here. That restoration can apply to you. If you don't see how it can, I'd ask that you not leave here today without talking to somebody about it if you don't understand this. We call the gospel the good news. Okay, let's say that you're a believer and you're not wandering. You feel pretty solid. Well, praise God. Literally sing praises to God. That's what James says. Be encouraged that he is going to use you for eternal kingdom work. Nothing less than human souls are on the line here. This is a big deal. And even though God does all the difficult supernatural work of saving and restoring and sustaining, he wants to use you, he wants to use me in the process of restoring others, and he wants to bless us through it. Whose multitude of sins are covered in verse 20? Does it even matter? We could answer that question. I don't think we need to. Look at 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And what a huge privilege that God would allow us to participate in the way that he's healing and saving and restoring. He doesn't need to do that. He's God. But he chooses to do it, and he encourages us to participate in that. That's what is going on here in these last couple of verses. Let's not let ourselves get so comfortable or so apathetic with stuff going on in the world that we neglect this calling, because it's a really high calling. We don't want to miss it. Let's speak words of encouragement, edification, and vulnerability to others. Let's pray like it matters and like it works, because it does. And let's pour ourselves into a community based on following the God who heals Stand with me and let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, um, we thank you for your word. Thank you most of all for your son because without him we couldn't even stand before your throne and, and talk to you and we wouldn't be useful to you. Lord, we are just humbled that you would want to make us your people, that you 
redeem us from our selfishness and everything else that separates us from your love and you adopt us into your family as your children. Father, thank you for your word and the wisdom of James, all these little wisdom commands that you use to change us into a more perfect picture of our Lord. Father, make us whole. Keep us wise. Make us the kind of community where healing and restoration are normal. And build your kingdom in our midst. We love you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, guys, for worshiping with us this morning.